yeah, I, def I definitely get it now, you know, making that transition. I've had a couple of people say, wow, how does a recruiter become a COO? I'm like, well, you know what? I founded a seven-figure business and sold it for a really decent multiple. That's how. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Carla Reffold. In 2010, Carla founded Beecher Maiden, an international cybersecurity recruitment company, which she scaled in the US and the UK. It was acquired in 2017 by Nicole Curtin, and in 2020, she joined Orpheus Cyber as COO. Orpheus are a threat intelligence and cyber risk rating company. Carla is an experienced speaker on topics of cybersecurity and women in technology. She hosts her own industry interviews on the CyberTalks media platform and the Zero Hour podcast. Carla, welcome. Thanks for doing this. No, it's great to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. So you were referred to me by my colleague, Leanne Sarah Jones Hunt. I understand she placed quite a few people with you at um, Beecher Madden when she was in the Rec to Rec business. Um, and we were brainstorming potential guests for the podcast, and you're someone she particularly admired. So I'm so glad that you agreed to do it. No, well, that's, yeah, that's really nice. And Leanne did, uh, yeah, she did place a lot of people with us. There was a couple of years where we hired like crazy. So she did very well, I think. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, she is a, she's a superstar, so I'm lucky to have her. Um, and, you know, you, you made the comment that you hired a lot of people over a couple of years. I'm especially interested to learn how you launched and scaled and sold your recruitment business. Would you tell me the story of starting and growing uh, Beecher Madden? Yeah, so it had been something I wanted to do for probably a couple of years, probably from the point I got into recruitment. The idea of having my own recruitment business was a really kind of key goal. So that had always been on the cards from quite a young age, I think. And um, I think we got, I always say we got lucky, but maybe it isn't really luck. I don't know. So we, we started the business and uh, we were going to do corporate governance. So a whole range of different things that I have been recruiting in for a while. And someone said to one of the first employees we had, I think it was employee number two or something, hey, you should check out this thing called cyber. And we were like, okay, let's give it a go. Um, and obviously cyber has gone on to become one of the biggest markets that everybody is desperate to get into. And we were kind of lucky to get into it right at the beginning. And very, very quickly we pivoted and only became cyber. And so I would say we were one of the first, if not the first recruitment company just hiring for cybersecurity. And that really enabled us to scale very quickly and build a really recognized brand as well. So we very much punched above our weight in terms of how many people we had within that industry very quickly. Amazing. You Just going back, you said that starting your own business was always on the cards or something you had thought about. Where, where does that come from or what, what, what was that uh, entrepreneurial drive based on? I have no idea. <laughs> it was just always there. And I think I think a lot of recruiters think it um, and think actually, well, you know, I could do this for myself. Like, you know, I think a lot of people do that. And a lot of people, in my experience, don't recognize the structure that they have around them. So when I meet people who've been at big recruitment companies that think, well, if, you know, my clients work with me. If they're working with me now, they'll work with me and my own business. And they, they don't, right? You don't realize how much marketing you have, accountants, all the legal stuff 
stuff you need to know, all the headaches. Uh, and I worked for a, a startup business. And part of the reason for that was to learn those things and to see what else goes on behind the scenes that I didn't already know. So I think that's a big thing that people who are thinking about it really ought to think about doing. Okay, no, makes sense. There is definitely a lot more to running a business than, you know, running a desk. Uh, there's so many more facets to it. So you had this entrepreneurial, you wanted to start your own business, um, 2010. What, why, like, what was the impetus? What, why was that the right time for you to take the plunge? I think it was just the right time in my personal life. Things were quite mm -hmm. settled. There was enough cash in the bank to float for about a year, year and a half. So mm -hmm. it felt like the right time and I'd probably been quite frustrated I was probably ready a year or two earlier but life wasn't so uh yeah just timing I think needed to have everything lined up brilliant so you started the business very quickly pivoted to focus purely on cyber and then how did things progress from there very quickly, it felt like. I think in the beginning, I had this really clear plan. Um, so we said, if we go £10,000 a month over our target, then we hire someone new. So really simple green flag system for how to scale. And that just kept happening. So we scaled very, very quickly. I, I mean, after year one, I think year one is very much building, getting your clients on board. It takes a while to bring people over, even the ones that have known you for a while. Um, but yeah, after that, we, I think, pretty much doubled in size every year for the first or for the next rather three, four years. And that was in terms of sales and headcount. Wow. So you doubled every year for the first two or three years. Um, you mentioned, can, can you just elaborate on this green flag, um, you know, trigger for making your next hire? When you say 10,000 over target, 10,000 in what time frame? In that month. So, okay. Um, yeah, 10,000 in a month, we would hire the next person. So the, the logic behind that was, that was about what it would cost at that time to run a, uh, a kind of a junior person for about three months in terms of their, their salary and desk costs. So if we did that, we knew that we could hire someone and then we had three months above what we wanted to have to make sure we could support them for at least three months. So that was the logic behind it. Um, now, looking back, I probably would have made that system less simple so it worked really well but I think then as we kind of get into kind of years three and four we've maybe got the wrong blend of people so we've hired so quickly we haven't focused on is everybody in the business performing or at least say 80% whatever number we would want to want to set so you've got a lot of people that are underperforming and you've got then um you know, a, a real balance. We maybe hadn't considered the balance. It was just like, right, well, we've hit that. So next person, maybe we haven't quite got enough senior people compared to the amount of junior people we had. And I think that worked when we were smaller, but you hit a certain number and all of a sudden it's a little bit harder because, um, you know, you as the founder can't keep doing everything when you've got that many people. Right. That makes total sense. So, in one way, having a really simple and clear trigger to hire the next person, I think is, is, uh, is great because that's often founders are not really clear on when should we hire, you know, when are we ready or what's the right time. But 
then you later discovered that there are other factors to consider, one being what percentage of the team are performing or hitting target, because you might be over your target by 10K, but there might be a small percentage of people in the team who are um who are pulling everyone else along. And so what would you say is the correct percentage? You mentioned a figure 80%. Is that what you would go by now or? I think, yes, that is what I would go by now. Um, okay. But so, it would depend, I think, for you as an individual. Okay. So as a rough guideline, 80% of people are at or above target. And as a business, you're, you've got you know, 10,000 pounds above target for the month. But then you also mentioned the factor of, do we have enough senior people in the business? Because if you just keep hiring, you know, more junior people without that structure, then the, you as the founder or the leader is going to get overwhelmed because you don't have enough time to devote to each person and helping them to, uh, to progress and develop. Is that, did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, exactly that. And also when people join, it takes them, I, I think it takes three years to be really good at recruitment and to have clients yes, coming to you. And yeah. so if you've got 80% more of your staff that are, you know, a year or less, then they're going to struggle to win the volume of work that they need to keep up with the figures that you need when you have suddenly hired so many people. And that's certainly what we found. We were very lucky because um, we had so many big clients that gave us volume work, you know, hundreds of roles a year. So it wasn't too bad. We were we were kind of sustaining that. But I was always worried, well, what happens if one of these clients turns the taps off? Then we don't have the people necessarily to go out and really win the volume of work we would need to replace that. And yeah, I think having a few more people with a few more years who could win that work and who others could learn from to your point as well, so that you're not, I'm not having to sit there and train them. Absolutely. I, it's funny that three year apprenticeship is one that I've thought of myself, because if you think of other professions, like, you know, whether someone's training to be a lawyer or even like they're learning to be a plumber, you know, there takes a certain amount of time to learn your trade, right? Your trade craft and your, um, you know, all the little tricks and, and techniques and, and things like that. And, um, so in terms of, you know, having these pillars upon which you can build your business, you need those kind of experienced people who've been with you for a while, not just experience, but also experience within the business. I think then you can build teams around them and you can scale with fewer problems that way. Um, so going back, you said the first 12 months were really just putting the foundations in place. So what did that involve? It involved bringing on new clients, uh, contract clients and permanent clients, really anything to get uh, big name brands signed up to us, working with us, get cash in the bank. What we also did that I think is a little different is we put in foundations as if we were a big business. So we had an employee handbook, we had disciplinary processes, performance improvement documents, all of that stuff that you need when you have a number of people we had from day one. And that came from having worked in 
the startup business already, seeing them get to a size where they needed that and having to try and implement it retrospectively and how everyone pushed back, resisted it, didn't really work. Whereas, uh, you know, that was a good learning for me that actually if you have this in place when you're a big business, it's no longer a problem. Um, So that was a big thing that we also focused on in year one. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I have never heard of anyone doing that proactively in advance. Um, I do love the idea of acting as if you're already a bigger company and structuring things and, and building robust systems and processes, you know, that you would need in order to scale. Um, I'm actually working with a group of recruitment business owners at the moment who are, you know, have a really good um, small practice and they want to grow and, and develop team members. And the majority of them are, are doing this like as they go, right. Um, kind of billing at a high level and trying to put these processes in place so they can onboard train, uh, team members and, and also get some of the work cause they're doing everything themselves and they're trying to like put other people in place and, and build a support team around them. Um, so I think the biggest challenge here, as, as you described it, you're winning clients whilst at the same time you're writing handbooks and, and performance improvement, you know, documents and that sort of thing. The, the big question is time. How did you juggle all those things? Badly. So once we, <laughs> once we got to a certain point, this I always tell people is the biggest mistake I made. We got to a point of around 25 staff. And at that point, I should have hired probably a HR manager or a training manager or an intern or a recruiter or something. And I didn't. I went with no, I can still do this myself. And that was a really big mistake. I think actually putting in somebody that would have freed up more of my time would have meant that we would have scaled even further than we did. Absolutely. I can totally see that. But you've jumped to 25 staff, even getting to that size, the majority of recruitment companies never grow beyond five or or 10 people. So how did you grow? So the first year, how many people were, were in the business by the end of 12 months? Three. Okay, so there's three of you, and you're just really focusing on like winning accounts, delivering to those customers, building that that base, as well as starting to develop this systems, the the processes that will enable you to then hire. And then, how did things progress from there? You're going to test my memory a little bit, but uh, I think I know we it's were, 11 years ago. <laughs> I know. I think we were then. It was probably about six in 2012. We we literally doubled pretty much year on year. So 2013, okay. definitely by mid 2014, we were about 12 to 15 staff, mm-hmm. um, and then 2016. By then, we were at 25 but I don't quite remember when we hit 25 but we were definitely there 2016 maybe even slightly higher actually 2016. Okay so what was the secret to growing so quickly because it's notoriously difficult um, even to find good people much less you know train and retain them and whilst you're doing all the other things you need to do as an owner you're still involved in you know your key clients, your, your managing staff, you're also responsible for all the other, you know, uh, departments. How did you pull that off? 
don't take holidays, don't sleep, don't go out, I don't know. <laughs> um, the green flag system really helped because we were very clear and it really it really helped focus. And I think as much as I, you know, just said, actually, it wasn't good enough, it was focused on cash. You know, I see a lot of people that focus on, hey, we just won this new client, so we're going to hire to resource it. We were focused on cash. So I think I think that really helped because we were, we were profitable through all of those years. Um, which again, I think is unusual. I think definitely we got hiring right to begin with. I think once we hit that 25 number, things definitely started to wobble a little bit. Um, but I think we got it right by hiring on, on values really, you know, does this person have the same sort of values that we have the right kind of motivation? Um, and then being invested in training them. And we had a really good training program at that point. Um, again, this is where, it, you know, it, uh, it the timing thing comes into it. So timing stretched. I used a training platform, sort of did less of the training myself, used one of the platforms to help train people. It didn't really work for everybody. And it's, you know, everything you've done, all that work you've put to get to that point has worked, but you can't then replicate it at scale. And that's why I think, you know, we should have got to, there was definitely enough work in the market to get to 50, 100 people. But it was the processes at that point. I probably hadn't switched them early enough. Okay, interesting. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I love recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So it sounds like one of the enablers of growth was that you were strong at winning work and bringing profitable customers in, you know, obviously that's a, that's a prerequisite, right? Cause you need growth requires cash. And so wh why do you think you were so successful at winning business? We, we were in a very good space, you know, cyber at that point, we maybe had a two, three competitors. We were very heavily invested in branding ourselves. So we didn't, um, by invested, I don't necessarily mean, uh, you know, paying for stuff, although we did, but it was a lot of effort. 
so I think we had adopted those things very early that really helped us people I always said you know what like the brand gets our calls returned and it, it definitely did if, if we were headhunting people people at least call back to hear what we had to say so I think that investing in branding was a big thing and the market we were in was a big thing and we had some really good people we had some really good people that just weren't afraid to pick up the phone and ask for the work nice love it so when you say brand and you know what what were you actually doing in order to you know be visible and and prominent in your market i was everywhere Every event I could get to, every, and podcasts weren't really a thing then, but any no, that's kind right. of podcast, video, uh, speaking engagement I could get. One of the things that we did, and everyone does it now, although they don't do it quite how I did it, um, is, uh, is salary survey. So realize, you know, you're sitting on all this data that people in the market really, really want. Um, we did really high quality salary surveys, more than just, you know, here's the numbers, here's some insight um, into what people think, what people want. And I never, not never, I would publish those maybe on our website in like October, December of the year, but they would have been collated in January, February. So I spent six months of the year saying, if you want this data, you have to have coffee with me or, you know, 15 minutes, that's what it's going to cost you. And that was a big way that we got in front of people. Love it. That's a brilliant idea. And um, so you did the salary survey and used that to book meetings, basically, uh, with clients. Yeah. And speaking engagements. You know, I would go speak on that. People want to hear that. You know, you've always got then very well populated talks that that drive engagement. And it was, again, just, you know, people need to know who we are so that when we call, they're picking up their phone. Yeah. And how did you get those speaking engagements? I asked for them. (laughs) Brilliant. Nice and simple. But okay, so you identified events where your potential customers were attending and just contacted the event organizer and and put yourself forward. And, you know, these are the topics I can speak on. This is why I think your audience will find it interesting or. Literally that. Yep. Great. Love it. You had. But so, Carla, what you had that I think many of us. don't, especially when you're launching a business and especially when you're like relatively early on in your career is you sounded like you have bags of confidence. Where did that come from? I have no idea, but it's always been there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely borders on arrogance at times, I think. Um, I think I've been really confident since I was a kid. My dad always told me, like, you know, there is nothing that you can't do if you put your mind to it. Um, And I'm currently reading the book Mindset by Carol Dweck, if anyone has read that. And that book basically says the same thing. If you try and you put your mind to something, you can do it. But, you know, obviously I didn't realise that at the time. But you try and you do things and you're good at them because you're trying and you're putting the effort in and you suddenly think you're good at stuff. So I think... It's a circle, isn't it? The confidence comes from the effort. Yeah, there's definitely a a circle. Um, The other book that is good on that theme is kind of, you could regard as a companion, is Grit. And... But the whole idea of um, which which uh, is in mindset is about a fixed or growth mindset. And the element that people misunderstand about having a growth mindset isn't about just thinking positive and being confident. It's 
how you deal with failure or thing or not getting the results that you want. And what a lot of people do is then they, they pull back from that activity or that project or that goal instead of embracing that and understanding that is part of the process of ultimately being successful. And that is failure and, and actually enjoy, not enjoying failure, but welcoming that as something you can learn from. I think that's the, the key, um, that I took away from that book anyway, mindset. Um, and it's why I love the name of the podcast, The Resilient Recruiter. Resilience is your number one thing as a recruiter. Oh, cool. Thank you for saying that. Um, I actually surveyed my whole audience about when I was brainstorming names and, and that's one that just really resonated for me. I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, so coming back to building the brand. So you just put, you were speaking everywhere that would have you, you did this great salary survey with lots of additional insight. You then use that to book meetings as well as those speaking engagements. Uh, was there anything else that you did to really make sure you were everywhere? We were quite active on social media. We had um, apprentices doing social media courses, so they didn't cost the business very much, and they were doing lots of hands-on activity. I think that's something people miss in, in kind of marketing and social media, that actually it's not about big strategic plans. It's about showing up every day, day in, day out, and just putting out content, and that's what apprentices were really great at. So that really helped. We built a good social media presence as well. Um so, yeah, I think all of those things just really helped us get everywhere. That's a fantastic idea. Was that through a, like an official apprenticeship scheme or like? The yeah, it was. And, um, you know, I think the government, the UK government, it kind of changes, you know, what it's funding and what it isn't. At the time, they were yeah. quite well funded. I don't know anymore, but they were definitely it was a really good route. And we've launched marketing careers for people. So yeah, that yeah. is so cool. Great idea. I love it. So, okay. So you had, you were really focused on just being everywhere, branding, picking up the phone, you know, asking for the business, brought on some great clients, became profitable, uh, cash flow positive, which then you reinvested in growth. And, um, you mentioned we had good people, but you, you and you hinted at one of your secrets there was values. When you say you hired based on values, did you actually? How did you develop your values, and then how did you actually assess against those values? You know, looking back now, I'm like, oh my god, it was so basic. But <laughs> so we kind of, um, you know, at the start of the business, I sat down and I thought, well, what, you know, what are my values, and what do I think, and. Um, you know, what, what's important to me? I, 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 I had too many. I had seven, I think, to start with. And I had the benefit of having worked for a very large FTSE 250 business as an internal recruiter. One of the things they had was similar thing, kind of uh, behaviours, I think we called them. And there were three interview questions for each of the behaviours that you could select as an interviewer. And I was like, great, we're going to just replicate that because it works. So I looked at each of the values, picked a couple of questions that might indicate whether or not somebody shared those values, had a scoring system. And that was what I put in place. Now I think, you know, looking back, were all of those values really my values? I think there's a few that 
you know, were more important than others. But that's how we did it. And it did help us identify people that definitely shared or didn't share those values. And I was then open to people that came from different backgrounds. You know, they didn't have to be, I want the person that's got 12 to 18 months recruitment experience. It could be, I want someone who's got sales experience or has just that mindset. And that was that was really how we did it, those questions. Fantastic. That's really cool. And yeah, I mean, sometimes it's good not to overthink it and just it's better to have a plan and something in place and and improve it later. Right. So you had your seven values, you developed the questions and then the scoring system. Brilliant. And then um, you mentioned that sort of getting to 25 staff was uh, a bit of a milestone where things wobbled a bit. Could you elaborate on on what you meant by that? So at that point, I think we're 25 or 30 people and I go on my second maternity leave. So I didn't really take mm-hmm. the first maternity leave. I was sending emails in labor. Um, oh my second, gosh. Not sure I should be proud of that, but I am. Um, the, second, <laughs> the second time I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this a little differently. Um, we hired uh, an MD to come in. Uh, to kind of allow me some of that time and I really took a big step back and that was a big mistake Mm. Um, I did you know I can't well take some responsibility I was still involved in some of the decisions um, but a couple of months about two maybe three months into that maternity leave and I'd only planned to take four months uh, I got a call from one of my long-standing members of staff saying do you know what you need to come back can you come back so cut maternity leave short early fired the md came back um we'd made some very senior hires at that point so things were things were just not as good as they had been when i left and it was really kind of back to basics so left the six month baby at home flew to new york because we had a, a new york um office at that point and i'd really identified america as where we could make big sums of money very quickly. So kind of went to New York, drummed up a load of business, sorted everything out. And within a couple of months, within about four to six months of me being back, everything was kind of back on track again. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, (laughs) um, what do you think, like, why was hiring the MD a mistake? I have some I can guess some of the uh, reason, but why do you think that was mistaken and what would you do differently in in retrospect? I think it was a mistake because I wasn't there to then guide them culturally. So actually Mm -hmm. I was very behind a lot of the things that they wanted to do, but I think now I look at it from the point of view of all of the employees there and actually the person you've come to work for isn't there. The person, mm-hmm. someone, else, someone else is there making all these different decisions. And as much as I'm sending an email saying, hey, yeah, I back this, I'm not there showing you that I back this. I'm not there seeing what's going on day to day and whether I really should support those changes. Mm-hmm. So we probably did need some of them to kind of grow up our processes a little bit. But I think not being there at the time that that was happening, that was a big problem. And I had definitely underestimated my value at that point. And I think sometimes you see that with founders, uh, CEOs, you get to a point where the business is expanding, you need to go move on and do bigger things, you need support beneath you, but you haven't 
maybe seen how much people value you and how they're working for you and that you stepping back from that is actually a problem for them. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I have seen this multiple times where a senior manager is brought in from a different company, different culture, and it's just, and it's not, uh, it's not worked. There's been like staff turnover of like really valued members, not people you wanted to lose. Um, so yeah, I can totally get that. But at the same time, you did need to have that break when you had your second child. So like, it's a, I mean, it's a difficult one, no matter how you, I don't think there's a perfect way of doing this. Um, if you were advising another woman leader who has had this situation on the horizon, what advice would you offer them? I think bring that person in a little earlier so that maybe, you know, the last three months before I went off, they could have been in there with me. There would have been a better transition. Yeah. I think maybe that would have made a difference. Okay. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So then the other thing you just kind of uh, skimmed over there was your expansion into the U.S. Um, So why did you want to do that? First of all, you said we can make loads of money, but obviously every market has its opportunities and its challenges. Um, Like, why did you decide? Because you could have, you know, focused on Europe or other, you know, markets might have been easier. So why why America? Great question. So... It's 2014 and I fully intend to expand to Singapore. I know everything about the Singapore market, the exam, the cash you need, everything. So, um, and then all of our clients stop talking to us about Singapore and start saying, hey, could you help us hire in New York or somewhere in the US? And almost like overnight, the plan switches from Singapore to New York. And it's very hard. No one... Not no one, but I was very few recruitment companies from England had done that now. Now a lot of them do because we've all seen the size of the market. Um, It was hard to find the advice of how to do that. But I got a really great, uh, really great guy that was experienced in helping British businesses launch in America. So used him to get us all legal and set up. And it's cheap and easy to set up in America compared to particularly compared to Singapore. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not necessarily easy to scale it, but it's, uh, it's easy to get there. So we were there, our clients were asking to work with us. Um, quickly this has become like within a year, the American part of the business is probably now generating about a third of our revenue. Wow. That's a quick, uh, quick, uh, up. So, um, just rewinding a second, Regarding uh, your decision to move to America, it was sounds like it was client led. You had clients asking you to help them recruit in the U.S. So that is a logical, totally logical reason. Why did you decide to lead the charge and actually fly over to New York and be the person on the ground? I just felt like I had to kind of trust myself a little bit. At that Mm -hmm. point, you know, things are... Things are very confused for me. I've been out of the business for a little while and things aren't where they were when I left. And I just really felt like, actually, this is an expensive trip. I want to make sure I extract maximum value from it. I don't want to send someone who's going to treat it as a holiday. And they probably wouldn't. Like, you know, I was probably being paranoid. But, you know, 
mum brains are paranoid. <laughs> it was, uh, it just felt like that was the right thing. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. I picked up maybe a dozen new clients, uh, probably half a million pounds worth of business came off that one trip. So it was, um, yeah, definitely the right thing to have done. Wow. Cool. So then, um, how did you, well, I'm trying to think there's a couple of directions we could go here. So you've got a new baby. How long were you in, uh, uh, in New York for? Just for a week. Oh, I see. So it was just like a, a mission rather than you weren't setting up camp and, and staying there at that stage. God, no, my mum would have actually killed me if I'd been <laughs> with two children for that long. I mean, a week oh, right. was bad enough. She almost did yeah. me. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. Man, it's those important people in our life who help to support everything we've got going on. So respect to Carla's mom. Um, so then how did you, you obviously had a really successful trip. How did you expand from there in, in the U.S. market? We had people doing it from the UK market at that point. Mm-hmm. And after kind of that trip, yeah, it was after that trip. It was in the three months after that trip, we hired people on the ground. Got it. Um, you know, had very much seen the value of being in the country. Yeah. And uh, it was about, it was just under a year later that I'd actually sold the business. And we probably didn't scale America as quickly as I would have wanted with people on the ground. But, you know, ultimately did get there and I moved there because you can fly back and forth, you can do the hours, it's tough. And Americans want to see you face to face. Now that might have changed a little bit, I think with with COVID and, you know, the move to being virtual, people don't mind that so much. But you, there is no replacement for kind of building that, that relationship in person when you're asking people to give you what could be quite a lot of work and a lot of money. Absolutely. I think it's critical that you have, if not one of the founders, then one of the, you know, senior people in the business actually on the ground to orchestrate that. Um, one of my clients who expand internationally, one of the, fa- there was three of them, which made it easier because one of them focused on the UK from Manchester. One of them went to Amsterdam and opened Amsterdam and, and Germ- you know, Netherlands and Germany. And one went to Singapore and, I, and I'm sure that they wouldn't have had as much success with their uh, expansion if they had just like tried to do it remotely. I don't think it would have taken off in the same way. So you started hiring people in the US. Uh, and what did you learn from that experience in terms of like the differences between doing business in the UK versus versus the US? What's your perspective on that? A lot is the same. Yeah. Um a lot really is the same, but there are obviously lots of kind of legal contractual differences that you need to be aware of. Um, I would say signed contracts in America, getting your contract signed early on is probably a bigger deal even than it is in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was definitely a learning curve for us. Um, there are, if you're going to do contract in America, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not difficult, that's the wrong way to say it, but you know, you need support. There's a lot of rules that are different that you don't necessarily know. Um, mm-hmm. The market moves very quickly, and that is wonderful, right? So people generally start within two weeks of getting the offer, which compared to the UK where you're like three months later, that is 
just wonderful. So there are some really good things about being in America. But yeah, I think just having the right support around you so you're not kind of breaking any rules. Got it. Yeah, I mean, salaries are higher in the US on average than in the UK, which means bigger fees. Also, I've found um, clients more willing to pay higher fee percentages. Um, and as you say, like it moves fast, people resign and they're starting the new job in two weeks. So that's good for cash flow. Um, what you mentioned the contractual part, like what you said, that was a learn, what happened, what experience or what happened that made you realize, whoops, we need to get our contract signed before we move forward here. We probably only had one, but we had one person and you know what? I think, you know, if I'd have really pushed it, then the, the, law would have been on my side saying yeah I'm gonna sign don't worry it's coming and then doesn't sign but you're trusting them and then we get to offer stage and all of a sudden they want to negotiate the fee down yeah and you know you're in a position of do I take legal action in a country where I don't know the system or do I just accept the fact that you're offering me this money and I'll take the money now and that um you know it wasn't a big amount of money it was about 25 grand that we lost out on that but it was frustrating enough to know Mm -hmm. do you know what one little mistake on trusting the wrong persons cost me 25 grand that one that one burns Mm -hmm. and he's in the industry that i'm in and i hate him and i will never ever help him (laughs) and will actively work against him you know i hold grudges I like it. No, for sure. I mean, that can happen. That happens everywhere. Right. But I guess if it's in your home turf, you know what parameters you can work within to resolve it. And it's less daunting to think of how would I even begin to tackle this? So I can I totally get that. I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge. And it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned 5,000 pounds per placement, but just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer, so in other words, she got a deposit, and her fee was an incredible 20,000 pounds, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. Did you say a year after you launched the New York office, that's when you sold the business? It was three years after launching in New York. It was about a year after my little blip of maternity leave and kind of coming back and getting everything back on track. Got it. Got it. Okay. So before we talk about that, how did you smooth things out with the the business after you returned from maternity leave? You, You said you sacked the managing director and then... 
what what did you put in place to shore up the business and and make sure that uh, everything was solid again? We'd hired a couple of quite senior people that were costing us a lot of money and not really doing anything. And as much as the MD had been a bit of a, a problem, and, and, you know, looking back, I think he was doing the right things. It just wasn't the right time. Um, but I think those senior people who are clearly being paid a lot and not delivering very much, they were also a big issue for the people that we had, you know, and understandably, like, I'm frustrated you get more than me and don't bring in as much. So they went as well. Um, and I think that the right people, the people that have been with us since before my maternity, I think they felt like things were returning to normal. And I think it was just kind of that that change of, okay, we're going back to how you liked it. Um, that made a difference, I think. So what was the rationale for bringing in these senior individuals and, and in what, what way were they not performing or having a negative impact? We'd brought in one person to go into a related market. So we were looking more at IT audit, which is quite related to cyber. Um, and they came in with a lot of experience, but just were not bringing in not bringing in the work, not doing the deals. And then I think we had two others that the MD had brought in. And he was probably right again, you know, identifying not enough senior people for the amount of experience that we had. Um, but you kind of expect them to come in and to at least bring in clients within their first few months, if not seeing deals. And we didn't have either of those things. So they were, you know, I'm not going to blame him. I was involved, but they were more his hires than mine. Got it. Okay. So that makes sense. So you had expensive people underperforming and also then upsetting the, the, the team who are performing. Um, what kind of development plan did you have in place to, to grow your own leaders instead of having to be reliant on bringing, bringing people in? We had a, a couple. There was one girl in particular that that joined us that did uh, that did very well. We had uh, quite a few of the people who had been with us from the beginning. By that point, had been promoted, and we tried lots of lots of different things for them. So some external stuff, um, lots around just getting them involved with how we run the business and showing mm -hmm. them kind of what that plan looked like for them. Uh, my plan had always been to sell. Bizarrely, when uh, I sold after seven years and when I found the original business plan, it said sell at seven years. So um, <laughs> it always seems to be seven years. I don't know. I don't know why everyone says sell it in five to seven years seems to be the um, so that's interesting. You knew from the beginning you wanted to sell. And, um, yeah. but then often what I've seen is that people say, I'm going to sell the business in five, seven years, but then they realize they're not ready at that stage and they decide to delay and hold and you'll keep growing so that they can, they can get more value. Why did you decide that the time was right, uh, to, to exit at that point? So as much as I had this plan to sell at seven years, when it came to that time, I had no plans to sell at all. So someone okay. approaches us. So this is the end of 2016. And someone approaches yeah. us and says, we'd like to put in, we want to take like 25% of the business and put in some money. I was like, not interested. This does not feel like it would work. And about six months later, um, I had lunch with them again and said, they said, Do you know what? That idea does not work. We've tried it in a few places, like with a few other companies. We're now all in. So it's 100%. I was like, 
okay, well, this is kind of interesting. Um, it was a good offer. I spoke to a couple of other people, uh, you know, who were also interested in buying the business and had that choice. Do I invest more myself now? I've got two children. Um, I'm getting divorced. Do I actually want to invest more money, more time that I don't really have? Or do I sell, let somebody else invest that money, kind of shore up my own financial position and have a little bit more support around me so it was personally the right time and it was also the right time for the business and it was they were good offers so fantastic so wow so you uh although you did have this long-term goal of selling a business at the time you weren't actively marketing the business for sale you had you were approached and then it and it seemed like a good partnership. Yeah, exactly that. And when people ask me, like, how did you sell the business? Because that's what everyone wants to know, right? I did everything wrong. Everything, <laughs> everything that they say you need to do, didn't have any of it. Didn't have the pitch, you know. Was it, There's no pitch deck. And there's no management accounts ready to go present. Um, it was all, you know, pulled together very last minute. Um, yeah, contract book was not where it needs to be. Succession plans, not where it needs to be. And yet, um, you know, yet we did all right. It still worked. Great. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I have a, um, a program that I created with, a, uh, one of my mentors, Romney Ross, and it's called recruitment growth accelerator. And we have a module in there about how to have a successful exit, not based on my experience, but based on his both as an acquirer as well as someone who's floated companies and, and done trade sales. And he has these, um, I think it's eight factors which reduce the value of your business and then 10 factors that increase the value of your business. And you go through this checklist of like, what can we put in place to make sure that we, you know, we capture the most value. So there are definitely things you, you can do, but yours sounds like it came about more spontaneously but then you stayed in the business for another what two two three years after that yeah I did so yeah um, why, why yeah, and think, how did that work out so I think the the big reason that we managed to sell the business in the way that we did is the market we were in and we really complemented the, the acquiring business so we had America they had Asia we had cyber they had banking it really complemented Crucially, values between me and the person who bought us were very, very aligned. We got on very well. We were very good at working together. And that was the reason I sold to them and not a couple of people who actually made bigger offers, but I just mm. could not stand the idea of working with. And uh, I had no earn out. I did have an earn out, but I didn't have to stay with the business to get it. I stayed because I kind of believed in the growth and what we were doing. It also gave me opportunities to work in a, a much bigger business and have a very senior role in a bigger business as well. So there were some good things in there for me. And honestly, the transition was super smooth. Um, it never felt like it wasn't my business, even though it wasn't. So it was like Amazing. doing it all, but without the stress. Wow, that sounds like uh, that sounds amazing. So, then you stayed with that business until 2020, I think. And then tell me how you came to um, to join Orpheus because you know a lot of this is a the topic of careers beyond recruiting. I think is is an interesting one. You know, n people don't necessarily stay in recruitment for life, and it can be a great. Um, vehicle or to to develop yourself and then 
be positioned to um, take advantage of other opportunities. So how did that how did that come about for you? So there are a few things in there. So the first thing I think is at this point, I'm not really a recruiter. I haven't really been a recruiter for a long time. I'm a business leader. So actually leading any other business is not a big transition for me. I'm also very um, well known at this point because I've gone to all these events and forced them to let me speak within the cybersecurity space. So I know a lot about cyber. So actually this transition is not a big jump. Um, kind of going back to what I'd said, the, the person um, who had bought the business was stepping away a little bit from, from the company and you know, I really valued their input. I didn't value the company so much. So actually this was becoming a business I didn't really want to be in. Um, but I'm moving to America, so it's kind of making sense to stay. But then we have COVID and things very much change. And actually all of those negative elements of the company I'm at accelerate. So it's very much just the right time for me to go progress my career. And cyber is booming. And it was all through kind of my network. So uh, I, you know, had a couple of people that made introductions for me and the role at Orpheus uh, kind of didn't exist, but was not not quite created. I think it was obviously something they were looking at, but had met me and felt like it was the right fit. So decided to put that role in. Awesome. So what was attractive, Carla, for you about the position with Orpheus Cyber? Firstly, it's a really great business in a very great niche of cyber. So cyber is niche in itself, right? But actually then there's a dozen niches within it and they're in two growth areas. Cyber risk ratings are huge for organisations, particularly when you think about insurance and ransomware and how it plays into that. And so is threat intelligence. That's very much valued. And they have some of the highest kind of accreditations in that space. So for me, it was a really great business in the market. And as recruiters, you see a lot of them, right? You know, you know which ones look good and which ones don't. So I was very excited about them as a company and kind of, again, with my theme all the way through, values of their CEO very much aligned. Amazing. And so what is your what is your mission as COO? What are you trying to accomplish at Orpheus? I do a lot at the moment. I think that's going to change soon. We're growing very, very quickly. Um, So when I joined, it was around marketing. It was around HR and strategic partnerships. And we now have, I'm not entirely sure, but I think we've got maybe double or more the amount of partnerships we had uh, when I joined. Not all me, of course, but, you know, the business is growing very quickly. We've done very well on our marketing and our branding so I think my role might have to narrow a little bit learning the mistakes from the past of trying to do everything Um, and we are expanding into America as well so my role will focus more on America than it has done. Fantastic it sounds exciting. Um, One more question I wanted to ask you Carla while I've got you is the challenge of being a young female founder, particularly in tech. Can you talk a little on that? Yes, very much. (laughs) um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. I've got an article coming out in a cyber magazine about this sort of thing. So um, I remember being, you know, when I was young, right, I was early 20s when I started the business. So I remember being in rooms with people who would literally say, you're very young, aren't you? Like like that to me. Wow, so condescending. Yeah. And what they really mean is 
very female, aren't you? And, mm. uh, you know, the industry, the industry has changed, but I would say back when I started in it, you know, being in your 30s and white and a man was very much the industry. And it's not quite like that anymore. I think we are a little more diverse. And those those men, I have also come to learn, are also more diverse in their thinking and their their tolerances you know there's no negativity there but at the time it didn't feel that way and I think that contributes to this feeling that you don't quite belong in your industry you know cyber as well very male dominated when you're a recruiter you're in an industry but you're you're not you know you're you're an outside supplier to that industry so there was definitely this feeling of not quite belonging and um those sort of feelings are great for me. They really make me angry and kind of power the success and that, that confidence that we talked about. But it, it's hard. And actually, if you don't have that attitude, I think it can be really, really hard. Interesting. So in what way did you use that as fuel to um, become even more successful? Like what was what was that? Was that a conscious thought process or do you think that's just the way that you respond to adversity? Maybe a bit of both. But I think when someone tells me I can't, when someone makes it clear they don't see the value, when they're underestimating me, that to an extent is very motivating because you have the chance to go prove somebody wrong. Um, and if anything, I've probably lost that as I've got older because I now just don't care about their opinions. But um, <laughs> that's one of the benefits of, of getting older, for sure. <laughs> but at the time, that was that was how I used it. And, um, you know, I think continue to use it to, to an extent because, yeah, I, def I definitely get it now, you know, making that transition. I've had a couple of people say, wow, how does a recruiter become a COO? I'm like, well, you know what? I founded a seven figure business and sold it for a really decent multiple. That's how. Um, but <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> Love it. That is a brilliant answer, Carla. Well, look, we're out of time for today. I've really enjoyed getting to meet you. So thank you so much for being on The Resilient Recruiter and sharing your journey. Fascinating. And I hope we get the opportunity to talk again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview. Recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you. Or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com, or feel free to nominate yourself. And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe, and I'll see you next time.